What's up? This is Nikki D with Medium Plus, and I've got an interview here today with Mr. Brandon Paul Weaver. Brandon is a very talented coffee man and bartender based here in Seattle, and he is a traveling dude uh, going to competitions and events around the country, but uh, calls Seattle his home, works at Liberty Bar, and has an events company called Matt and Gloss. Uh, Brandon is a really fascinating character to know both as a friend and as a professional so we'll dive into some some deep technical topics here um, but also talk about the importance of hospitality um, so you can find Brandon on uh, social media and uh, this is a production of Medium Plus the episode is edited and mixed by Chris Barr he's at soundcloud.com slash Chris dash Barr D-A-H-R and uh, I'm Nick Davis so Without further ado, here is my interview with Brandon Paul Weaver. Traditional coffee vessel here. It is, yeah. Yeah, as the uh, Ethiopians often. Okay, so what do you have here for me? This is, well, it's a, two different copies that are roasted, both from Ethiopia. Uh, processed differently. One's a wash process, one's a natural process. So it's kind of varying levels of fruit, basically. Uh, brewed hot. Chilled pretty immediately, and that's that. It looks like it has some viscosity. It's it's slightly concentrated. The other thing too is, I mean, you know, you cool, cool anything, it's going to increase in viscosity a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, so I think I think that's part of it. It is slightly concentrated though. Really bright acid up front, and then African coffee often yeah. more of those roasty mm -hmm. flavors, Maillard flavors, toasty Maillard reaction. Mm -hmm. So what are the coffees that we have? Uh, so it's it's two two different Ethiopian coffees. Yeah, natural okay. process ones from the Hambella Estate, and then the wash process is from Worka, which is a a, a coffee mill in uh, Yurgachefe, Ethiopia. You think you'll visit there someday? I hope so, Mir. Yeah, I would really love to. I've almost gone to Kenya a couple times. It just never seems to line up. I love Kenyan coffees. Yeah, Kenya, Ethiopia. What else? I'd what go anywhere. Though. I'm actually well. Actually, on Monday I'm going to Hawaii, so we're gonna visit a Hawaii. Coffee. We're gonna visit a coffee farm out there. Yeah, cool. Which will be my first time actually visiting a coffee farm. How is Hawaiian <laughs> coffee? Oh, it can be. Yeah, it can be just as good as anywhere else. You think so? Yeah, absolutely. It's it tends to be expensive, uh, because we actually pay the people who make it a good wage. <laughs> I see. <laughs> you know what I mean? I see. Uh, which. So, so the value might not be the greatest, but the coffee can be, yeah, absolutely delicious. One of the best espressos I ever had was uh, from a Kona coffee. Really, really tiny, tiny little seeds. Uh, just different climate, lower elevation. Um, so I'm familiar with grapes, like on the vine being, how do I, how do I say this as far as size? Like you ever seen a chocolate covered blueberry? <laughs> Sure. Well, you I, can use coins. Coins are often good. Coins, size, yeah. So like a dime would yeah. be uh, oh, okay. a good size for a, a wine grape. Up to maybe a nickel, depending uh -huh. on the variety. So like Cabernet Sauvignon, smaller. Okay. So there's more of a ratio from skin to juice. Got it. Something like Sanso, bigger berry, thinner skin. More juice. More juice. Yeah. Less tannin. Yeah. Uh, there is a similar varietal difference with coffee. Uh there's a, there's a town in, in Brazil where they found a, a giant mutation of, of uh, Tipica, which is a typical 
coffee that they pulled out of Ethiopia and, and planted across the world. It's called Marigokipe. It's a town. Or Marigokipe, depending on who you are. It's huge. Absolutely huge. So you're the looking at about big. the same. Yeah. Yeah, you're probably looking about slightly larger than a dime. And these ones are probably near quarter sized. They're huge. So uh, and the it's seeds. very and cheery, interchangeable. Yeah. Yeah. Same same term there. Yeah. It's it's in a similar family. It's it's sort of a tropical stone fruit. Do you think uh, plum, apricot, and we roast the pits effectively. I see. So if we think about it in the stone fruit analogy, yeah. you're putting the pit yeah. in a roaster and then grinding that. Exactly right. And, and part of the issue... The reason you don't see the fruit anywhere is that there's just not much of it. The seed takes up most of the the area. And so once you get the fruit off, mm. it's just really flabby. There's not there's not a ton there. It's a minimal amount of So it's just not worth pulp. selling really. Right, right. And it probably doesn't keep that well. It doesn't keep very well. People will dry it and you make tea out of it. In uh, South and Central America, they call it cascara. Cascara. Uh, which is good. It's highly caffeinated. Kind of tastes like hibiscus. It'll get you going. Fruity O gets you going. Yeah. So when you mentioned Tipica, is that in any way connected to Arabica? Yeah, it's a, it's a variety of Arabica. So Arabica is your, your Venus vinifera. Okay, this is species. Species, yeah. So, so Conifera is, is commonly called Robusta. It's a different species of coffee. So that would sort of be a, <laughs> to build the analogy uh-huh, uh-huh. like, like um, Vitis Labrusca. Hmm. So, sure. Not not as good for fine wine. Totally, like, totally. So you, uh, what was, is Robusta? Yeah, so that's the Italian word for it because the plant itself is robust. You can grow it pretty much anyway. Like, just like Labrusca grapes. Yeah, yeah. And I think similarly, uh, that hardiness, uh, the bitterness that it imparts is part of the hardiness of the plant. It's a survival mechanism because it, it doesn't want us to steal the seeds to drink them. It wants to propagate, you know, it wants to plant itself. So Italian name robusta. Yeah, Canephora is the Latin name. Canephora. Cafia Canephora. And then Arabica mm-hmm. is the other species. There's, and then there's a lot. There's about 120 species. Yeah, mostly in Ethiopia, mm-hmm. uh, in in Africa in general. Actually, uh, they found some naturally decaffeinated coffee in really? uh, Mali, West Africa. Yeah. But what would you say that most of the coffee that we drink? Is Arabica? Oh yeah, by far, by far. Most of the coffee produced in the world is is Arabica. Because I see a lot of coffee labeled. Oh, these are Arabica beans. Hundred <laughs> percent like... Arabica. Yeah, you can sort of. Um... Yeah, it's a market. I mean, a lot of the cheapest coffee that you get is a either a blend of Arabica or Canephora, depending on how the prices fluctuate across the world, or it's just mostly Canephora because it's mm. cheaper. It is. Uh, and it's highly caffeinated, <laughs> but well, and that's like hybrid grapevines that are mm. um, genetic crossings of of Labrusca and Vinifera. For example, Vidal Blanc is oh my goodness! I think it's Saval Blanc and Uni Blanc. Saval and Uni Blanc. Anyways, so that's that's a interspecies hybrid so uh it's a cross when it's vinifera on vinifera got it so got it cabernet sauvignon is a cross of cabernet franc and sauvignon blanc so mommy is 
Sauvignon Blanc. Daddy is yeah. Cabernet Franc. Baby is Cabernet, Cabernet Sauvignon. Sauvignon. Yeah. But let's say, uh, so the, they're they're like the same species, right? Well, I think that's part of the definition of the species is that it can't inter interbreed. Right. Right. So then the hybrid is two different species hooking up, mm-hmm. and then the baby is neither. Right. So that so this is a thing that happened in Indonesia in coffee where Kinefra and Robusta had a baby and it has traits of both. Uh, it's, they call it, uh, HDT. Hibrido de Timor. So on the island of Timor. Tiny little spot. Tiny little island. Yeah. Uh, but this, that hybrid, uh, has allowed, uh, agronomists and, and, People, people, coffee growers in laboratories to try to develop varieties that are hardy and robust, but they try to hybridize in flavor components of Arabica, so you kind of get the best of both worlds. I see. It's a huge, huge project in Colombia, uh, and they've done some in, in, in other places across uh, Central America, really. So. so, what are the main coffee producing areas? Mm-hmm. I think it's it's closer to the equator than we see with wine. It's it's literally tropical between the tropics, Cancer and Capricorn. Hmm. It's a, so when I say it's a tropical fruit, it literally grows between the tropics. It's a tr- yeah. true tropical fruit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I have a plant in my kitchen, but it's not growing very well. Right. So <laughs> is that is that mostly is it a combination of humidity, temperature, sunlight? Yeah, it's it's uh, an altitude and temperature thing. Uh, it likes to grow way up. Uh, we're talking. Up to, to 2,200 meters at some some points. 2,200 meters? Yeah, this is that's mostly in Ethiopia, uh, uh, way up there. Up in their plateau land. And But so then, but it can't ever freeze because the plant will die okay. if it freezes. And uh, it needs a good amount of sunlight to grow. So it's kind of it's suited to particular microclimates. Um, but you get that often around the tropics. So you can kind of... You can kind of go slightly lower the further out you get from the equator. Same territory as is cacao. Same territory as cacao, although I think cacao grows a little bit lower elevation. Okay. And interestingly enough, uh, same territory as agave in Mexico. Literally, some of the mm. same same farms that grow next to each other. They do coffee yeah. and agave. Uh, or maybe interplantings ever. So you know, you know, mezcal tospa. Yeah. So. Oh, I'm gonna blank on his name right now, but 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 one of the gents who who's uh, one of the representative of Mesquite Tospa is sending me some green coffee from from their farm. That's from their agave farm. So I, who knows if it's any good? I'm hoping it's gonna it's gonna be stunning, and I'm gonna buy a ton of coffee from them. But It'd be fun to taste those side by side. Exactly right. See yeah. if they pick up any. <laughs> or or to make a cocktail with both and like reunite them, right? <laughs> like you know, they're neighbors where they grow and grows together, goes together. What kind of food? comes from that particular area like it isn't in oaxaca well yeah so i mean i think oaxaca i think mole immediately Mm. um what do you think you know we're talking chocolate same same um climate those sort of roasted but fruited flavors i think go really good together cinnamon coming from there as well they make the grow the trees well so cinnamon's something i always forget about because there's two there's two different cinnamons there's like a true cinnamon and there's like a pseudo cinnamon, uh, and I and I cinnamon? can never keep them. Cine- a, oh, a, a cinnamon. Oh my gosh. <laughs> a pseudo cinnamon. It's a it's a it's a cinnamon a cinnamon. <laughs> yeah, I think you're just rapping now. Yeah. 
That's a new career for you. There we go. <laughs> I just talked to Cameron George. I, I did some of that when he was on. But uh, yeah, there's there's the sticks that are small. Yep. Yeah, because it's there's a the bark. Yeah, Ceylon. But so that's uh, Sri Lanka, mm. right? So I think I think it's the Indonesian one. I'm not sure though, because I, I do associate that sort of spice, that quality of spice flavor with that. Well, I'm sure there's a area. C- cinnamon, cinnamon synonym expert <laughs> out there. We could uh, we could interview <laughs> the, the worst business card. <laughs> <laughs> they would have to be a rapper or like a spelling bee yeah. champion. Yeah. yeah, a lot of overlap there. So remind me, what were you doing earlier today? You said you were picking up some grinders. I was, yeah. There's a, a wonderful company, grinder company called Baratza, uh, based in Bellevue of all places, uh, Newport technically, uh, and they have a whole range of grinders. Uh, as, as actually trading in, I have a few of the uh, older models. We're talking electric. Yeah, electric grinders. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the ideal home grinder, uh, electric grinder. And then they have models that go all the way up to, to cafe industrial use, but um, where they're just in constant activity for yeah, or near constant. A lot of a lot of the newer shops will have say three of them side by side, so they can offer say three different pour overs or something. Uh, and they're great for that. You know, you're, if you're running each one a hundred times a day or something, they're, they're workhorses. They're going to do that for you. So you would have three, so that each grind is calibrated. Yep. Yeah, it would be a well. So you probably hold the uh, in the hopper. You'd hold a different coffee. Um, oh, I see. So for ease of use, uh, that makes sense. A lot of the higher models are weight based, so you can actually program different doses. So if say you're making one cup or two cups, uh, you can have it pre-set to to grind say twenty grams or forty grams. You just hit that button, and it grinds twenty grams, weighs it out immediately. Are you familiar with the grinder they have at Camless? Because Aaron. I used to watch him, uh, Aaron Reed. He would just hit a button and it would pre-dose out mm-hmm. a certain amount. Mm-hmm. I actually funny you mentioned that I was there two days ago, mm-hmm. uh, but I did not pass through the coffee area this this time. Um, do you remember what it looks like? Mm. I'm sure I w- I'm sure I it would looks like a thing you would see on Space Odyssey. Like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, and I've got my little Hario hand grinder that takes about 100 revolutions to grind a couple ounces. But Well, you get your workout in. Yeah, I get my forearm <laughs> workout in. Yeah, before you My forearms it. need some Vulcan. So. Uh, and what's nice is you just turn a little dial kind of in the mechanism. Yeah. And you can adjust the grind it size. It moves the burr up and down to close the space or open the space, depending right. on how big you want the particles to be. Yeah. Yeah, these these most of those grinders from Bratza, and I, I'm pretty sure that for for brewed coffee, that's what Camus is using. I'd be, I'd be surprised if it was something different. So Bratza for grinders, definitely. And then is it La Marzocco is a good um, incredible for espresso. Well, so there's, I mean, this world of espresso machines is vast and fascinating, 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 fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Lamarzoka are some of the most incredible machines in the world. Absolutely. Uh, they actually opened a cafe recently here. I don't know if you've been there. No. Down in the Queen Anne. They share a space with KXP. Rad. It's gorgeous. And you could see from the cafe, you could see into the studio. 
So, you know, Cheryl Waters or whoever it is, you know, uh, yeah. more, uh, day of the show. Uh, yeah. Or if they have in-studio performances, you're, you're, you're watching them. And they're, they're broadcasting, so you hear it in the cafe. So you can you see hear it. it. And then it's, it's some world-class coffee. That's cool. Are, and are they sourcing from any number of roasters? Precisely. And that's actually, that's actually the really exciting thing about what they're doing that's unique, as far as I know, across the world. Is that they're having month-long residencies. Okay, oh, so wow. so you, espresso machine company they can't just sell this or that coffee because they have allegiances to anybody who wants to buy the machines. Right. So people uh, apply or they request people to come and and they'll take over the program for a month. And so, uh, actually speaking of Mexico, Buna did the second one. It's a it's a roaster in Mexico City. Uh, fantastic coffee. But so they came in and they did some of their specialty drinks. Uh, they had like a cafe con leche sort of thing. Uh, and they trained the whole staff there how to make their drinks, serve their coffee for that month, and then it rotates. That's so, so cool. So right now they're actually doing a Heart in Portland. They did a Santa Cruz roaster before that, Cat and Cloud. It's uh, like a pop-up. It's like a pop-up. It's a roaster pop-up. Uh, so, so how cool for the employees, too. You're seeing techniques from all over the world. that come in. People literally come in and teach you that, and you practice that for a month. Oh, their crew comes up and, and trains them and trains yeah, them. Yeah, yeah, and because they, they, you know, they want their product to be represented how they want it to be represented. Of course, it'd be like a winemaker uh, coming and working with a sommelier team to discuss the wine service. Absolutely, yeah. And the the bar that they have is at La Marzocco is somewhat modular, so they can actually move things around. Mm. to you know some shops will do pour overs some will do batch brews and people have strong opinions about that and so they can actually take add in or remove elements mm -hmm. uh, it's pretty cool it's pretty cool do you have any friends who are behind the bar there yeah uh well it rotates i don't know uh often often times i do yeah yeah, yeah. the seattle barista scene is is uh, it's active, active. It's yeah, it's just like bubbling the cocktail and oh yeah, wine scenes yeah. are very active. And on a tangent, I've been curious about the beer scene as far as obviously tons of breweries in Seattle, but is there a unified community of industry people within the beer scene? I don't know. I don't. I'm not sure either. There is, I know for a fact, there's a ton of overlap between coffee and beer, too. Okay. As far as, I, I think, in, in part, it's because uh, if you're getting some, you know, really special, say, bottle of wine or bottle of liquor or something, mm -hmm. it can cost you. Uh, and it, it sort of takes some familiarity with why that's so special. I think the entry point into really great beer or really great coffee is at a similar price point. It's just a little bit more accessible. You can get some of the best beer for like you know 12 bucks yeah the best beer in the world yeah can be in your glass for uh the same as it costs i don't know for a shirt a shirt totally a shirt. and the same can be said this is a car or... for wine sometimes <laughs> yeah 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 certainly or or liquor or liquor uh, that's yeah uh i think I think it was a whiskey advocate or, or one of those magazines just did their buying guide and and awards and some of those were like twenty five thousand dollar bottles. Crazy. Yeah, a car or a bottle of whiskey. So there are these multiple and overlapping communities, mm -hmm. not just in Seattle but around the country and the world. But let's 
break it down. So we talked about beer, mm. and I'm sure there's sub-communities here, but uh, there has to be yeah. broad strokes, um, beer, wine, coffee, tea, coffee and tea together, separate? Sometimes, sometimes. Depends. Yeah. Um, there's cocktails and spirits mm-hmm. might be its own thing sometimes too, but those awesome. are pretty linked up. Mm-hmm. Um, so at least six communities. Who am I leaving out? These are the, the um, liquid communities. Yeah. Liquid, liquid communities. Yeah. yeah. Kombucha. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right. I'm sure there's uh, Kombucha some, Society. some water tasters out there. And you are among the people I know who bridge multiple mm-hmm. uh, communities in, in a really important way where I think you are a, a pillar of uh, many of them especially coffee and, and cocktails are the two that I think of first. Certainly. Uh, would you Certainly agree those with are my, my, my foci. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I, I mean a pillar, I don't know. I thank you for saying that, but uh, I, they're definitely loves of mine for sure. I, I, it, it can be hard to do both because they're sort of at different times of the day. <laughs> typically. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it depends on the day uh, for me. But. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes one demands the other. Probably when you were tasting coffee this morning, I was I had the tasting group at 10 a.m. Uh, yeah, I was brewing right. coffee. You were brewing coffee. Well, and I also I closed the bar last night, so you know I got home around 4. At Liberty? At Liberty Bar. Okay. Correct, yeah. yeah. Is that the main bar you're at now? It is. It is. It's, it's the only bar that I'm at at the moment, yeah. And aside from there, are you... Are you doing anything with Matt and Gloss right now? Well, so, you know, we will do events. My my compatriot, Nick Foray, uh, actually, shout out, I, I denied a FaceTime call as I was walking up the stairs from him. So oh. I, I owe him a call. It's yeah. on record now. <laughs> Give him a hug for me. Uh, I, will. Uh, I will. Over over the inter-sphere. <laughs> uh, he's, he's down in L.A. right now. Yeah. Uh, with family. So his, his, his uh, younger brother had a baby, so he's Uncle Nick now. Uncle Nick. Yeah, yeah. I think we we should all start calling him that. Is this a sabbatical for him or just a um, new permanent home? Uh, both. Both. He's he's looking into some jobs that might uh, allow him to travel some. Okay. So he'd be yeah, up, up and down, but that's all pending. Just stay tuned. So for you, Liberty. Liberty, definitely. And then it seems like you're active and definitely travels and other projects. Well, so I started roasting coffee recently. Which is a new adventure for me. Uh, That's cool. Well, okay, I started roasting coffee two years ago, but I started selling that roasted coffee recently. So you're actually like legit doing it, right? People right. can go get it. And that was a little bit of an accident. Uh, speaking of beer, actually, if you go, uh, the Elfords, Chris, Chris and Anya Elford mm-hmm. recently opened No Anchor. Uh, Great bar. Fantastic. Weird, weird beer and rad food. I think is their their thing. Uh, I'm down. Got the James Beard nod for Best New Restaurant. Let's see how that pans out. Uh, but they they were actually my first customer for, for coffee. Still are. Uh, cool. So if you ever, they do brunch every day. If you ever get coffee down there. I, I was the one who turned to brown. <laughs> you were the one who turned the to co- brown? The coffee brown. You, yeah. Oh, you turned to brown. Because it comes to me green. Oh, I, I get it. And I turned to brown. <laughs> Don't take that anywhere else. No, 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 no. <laughs> I, that's hilarious. Uh, so are you working out of another roaster's 
facility. Yeah, yeah. By the time uh, there's a there's a great shop down in, in Queen Anne Belltown, kind of right on that border called Street Beam. Okay. Uh, actually, take in uh, I don't know disadvantaged or homeless youth and teach them how to be baristas, and they go through this whole program and try to get them back up on their feet and teach them a obviously employable skill here in Seattle. Barista work, so. A bit like Fair Start. Uh, a, a bit like Fair Start, exactly right, yeah. Uh, similar ideas, different organizations, but they've uh, graciously allowed me to use some of their equipment down there. That's cool. Uh, yeah, yeah. And where are you sourcing your fruit, as it were? <laughs> All over. Uh, well, so there's two different ways to answer that. We get them through importers uh, because, you know, you cross the border and they ask you if you have any fruit or anything because it's illegal to transport produce unless you have licensees for that sort of thing. Sure. So there's a couple importers I work with, uh, uh, Sweet Maria's and, and Royal, uh, okay. both in Oakland, actually, based out of Oakland. Um, and so they, they have people flying around the world, uh, working with farmers, uh, developing projects, uh, providing, you know, helping, helping to create infrastructure and that sort of thing. Um, and so I, I get coffee from them. I, they, their website's really good. They tell you what the coffee is. You can order samples and roast a little bit to see what it tastes like, see mm -hmm. if you want to buy more of it. Mm -hmm. So I'm engaged in a lot of that sort of thing. Uh, Royal, uh, I sourced uh, coffee competition coffee for recently. Cool. The so you, competition. you were sourcing the coffee that was used in the competition. Mm -hmm. And were you roasting it? I was. Wow. That's Which is honor. a first for me. I've competed before. I've never been involved at that level before. On the supply side. Yeah. Yeah. So so what you're doing is similar in winemaking to what they call custom crush, where like Palmire, for example, okay. in, in Napa, they don't have an estate winery mm. of any kind. They, they go to a facility and they buy fruit from uh -huh. any number of vineyards and they rent the equipment and... They can use that facility to age their wine, um, but it's kind of a, a shared space yeah, in a way. Totally. That would contrast to someone who perhaps has their own winery. So that'd be like if you owned your own roasting right, shop. Right, right. Versus owning your own coffee farm that yeah. roasts on premise. Which, well, the, the premises tend to be separate, but there are several coffee companies that are starting to own farms now too, mm -hmm. which is a, a, sort of an extension of the chain that, that wasn't so common, I don't know, five years ago even. Right. Um, Do most coffee farms have some sort of, of roasting capability? I'm not gonna say most. Uh, coffee really exploded in the last, I wanna say 20 years. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it had in part to do with globalization and just sort of closing the feedback loop between producer and consumer mm -hmm. uh saying like well if if we we treat coffees in a certain way on the farm it can translate to a certain experience in the cup and to close that gap part of the work there was to provide farmers with the capacity to roast and taste their own coffee in the same way that we do right uh which what's yeah closing that gap allows them to you know just be more informed about why people may or may not want to buy this or that particular lot of coffee uh and they can make more informed decisions based on whatever market uh they're they're presented with so it's been it's been a, a increasing project to to 
bring little sample roasters to this and that farm per se. Uh, and then, you know, teaching uh, sort of our protocol of, of tasting coffee. It's a, a method called cupping. It sounds a lot more risque than it is. <laughs> uh, involves uh, dipping a spoon into a bunch of bowls and slurping coffee. Uh, that the, It's just sort of a, a standardized way to taste a whole bunch of coffees at once without getting too caffeinated. I, I've attended a cupping a few times, and it's amazing how many different coffees can be experienced yeah. all at once it's fun and and it seems like the coffee folks have a really great vocabulary to talk about the drink that's actually a really cool uh really cool topic there is there's some some innovative flavor research being done uh or that that was done using coffee uh there's there's some amazing flavor scientists at kansas state university and and their their whole job is to come up with scientifically produced uh, lexicons for flavor. So they've done it for like soy sauce, uh, you know, not just they, they this is this is what they do like objective. So yeah, descriptions. and the way they do it is with with correlates basically. Uh, if you say this tastes like blackberry, mm-hmm. they have uh, an item. In this case, it's it's a it's a brand of blackberry jam that is their referent for blackberry. So it doesn't matter that you, you know, your great grandma used to pick blackberries and make pie in the backyard, and that's what you think is blackberry. You can still have that memory as blackberry, but when they say blackberry, they mean Smucker's jam. It's a particular thing. It's a particular thing that anyone can go buy, and they use they use big name brand things like that so that it's accessible to anybody. And it's likely consistent. And it's likely consistent because it's huge industrial scale. So they then sample coffee, uh, a bunch of coffees blindly. And they'll sort of correlate certain flavors in each individual coffee. Uh, and they'll repeat this. A bunch of different people will who, who've calibrated together. Mm-hmm. And unless something is, unless a flavor note is repeated in a statistically significant way for that coffee every time, uh, they don't add it to the lexicon. And when it is, they, they create this whole list of flavors that they've objectively found in coffees. Uh, which is pretty cool. What's uh, the name of the organization? So this is Kansas State uh, University. Kansas State. Yeah. Cool. Uh, I forget the, the, the exact program that it is, but that, that should be searchable. Uh, some other organizations, uh, I know University of Texas, I forget which campus, and uh, UC Davis also did some work turning mm-hmm. this lexicon into a flavor wheel. UC Davis is huge for wine. Well, Huge. So they're developing. They have some classes on coffee now too. Yeah. Uh, and they're actually developing uh, a roasting space, and then at some mm. point curriculum uh, along the same lines. Um, UC Davis was sought out by by some folks uh, involved in coffee because of that pedigree with wine. You know, my experience. There's a common phrasing used of saying, "Well, for me, I get." this note for me i get this note and it's like well if you look at let's say a color wheel yeah and say well for me i get blue when i look at that it's like well no we agree that blue (laughs) is different than but you can also be colorblind you can also be colorblind so that's an absence but and maybe my blue is different than your blue but i doubt it because we've agreed (laughs) that like let's say well even if it is though yeah we can agree that that's blue even if our experiences are different, as long as we agree when we communicate. 
Because there's no way for me to know if my blue is the same as your blue. Yeah, you're well, not, you're not my Maybe head. there's like a, some kind of logic way that we can know, but. I think it involves some like MRIs and brain scans. Yeah, some like frequency, you know. Molecular right. something it's or It's beyond other. my capacity anyway. But I think it's enough for us to just agree. But if we can both look at something and say, okay, that's blue, that's red, that's green, with smell and taste, mm. it should be the same, right? Well, yeah, and we, I mean, that's guy, we strive towards that. This is, uh, this is an issue I was talking about at competition because part of the way that you're judged is how accurately you describe your coffee flavor to your judges. And so they, they have one separate score for, I mean, you're preparing espresso for them uh, and some other beverages. And so the, part of the score is them object, objectively tasting uh, the cohesiveness, say, the balance, right? Right. It, it can be it can be high acid, it can be low acid, but it has to be structured. It has to be in balance, whatever whatever it is. And so that's they objectively do that. But then another score is how accurately did you describe it? When mm. you said there was going to be, uh, you know, an herbaceous finish like thyme or, or sage or whatever it is, mm-hmm. did they did they find that? Did that correlate with their experience? And they scored you on that as well. And so mm. there's this big discussion about. Well, sh- how do we calibrate that? You know, like right. are, a lot of times with different roasters and companies that that grow larger, they have this sort of internal lexicon where they can all they're all calibrated to each other. When they say that that picture is blue, right? They all agree. But then you take that into a different context, and, and suddenly it's different. It's different. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it, it, I don't know. It's a big discussion going on right now because because we are using it as judging criteria. Right, and in the wine world, in let's say a sommelier exam, there's a tasting exam, and um, there's a whole list of vocabulary that we use to describe the visual, aroma, palate. Right. And the goal is to have it be all on the same page. Uh, But it sounds like with coffee, they're really, they have an established paradigm, and that's... Well, it's it's interesting, I think, in the wine case, because it's going the opposite direction, right? It's, it's, here is this wine, and, and you're trying to narrow down what it is, or at least what it could be. And with coffee, you, you know what it is, and you're trying to describe to them what it tastes like. What it tastes like. Uh, it's kind of going the opposite it's, direction. It's in the inverse. Yeah. But with wine, there's definitely the impact of winemaking, which maybe we can correlate to roasting. Well, and process um, on, at farm level. I, I, but I that might be more of a viticulture uh, to uh, farming. Yeah, um, but there's also with wine the aging aspect, and mm-hmm. as as far as I can tell, that's not as much of an impact with coffee. Certainly, not. freshness is valued. Yeah, there is still a window, but it's it's not in terms of months or years. It's in, in terms of days. So. But whereas there is complexity gained from aging a wine, would it be the opposite where complexity is lost with coffee? Uh, as it goes stale, perhaps? Yeah, yes. Although somewhat confusingly, it peaks uh, between one to two weeks. So there, there is such thing as... Post-roasting or pre-roasting? Uh, post-roasting. Oh. So there's such thing as too fresh. Uh, there, there are a lot of opinions as to why this happens, but as far as I know, no good uh, scientific explanation. Well, it's like after a wine is made and put in bottle, it's often rested for a period of time mm-hmm. just to let everything... Uh, it's like when you get leftovers, like Indian food leftovers, oh, the next day yeah, are so good yeah, because the flavors yeah. have 
sat and yeah. become cohesive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's, certain, that's certainly a thing. Coffee also gives off a lot of CO2. Uh, I don't know if you ever get a bag of coffee and notice it's kind of puffy. Yeah. That's why. Uh, there's awkward. a one-way valve uh, on most coffee bags so that that CO2 can go out without oxygen getting in. Right. Uh, and the peak flavor seems to be somewhere after it's given off most of its CO2. Interesting. Uh, yeah, again, why that is, there's there's a lot of opinions, but nothing necessarily solved as far as reasons. So then we get into how people consume coffee and like we have here, this is a, would you call this a cold brew? Well, it was actually hot brewed. So the brew was hot here, yeah. and then right. it was chilled. Right. Flash chilled. Flash chilled. Right. So the brewing process is different and the result is a cold coffee. Right. So people... I guess enjoy coffee either cold or warm. Generally, not there's like a danger zone kind of. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Where it's just not, I mean, not from a, a food safety issue, but uh, maybe flavor, from a flavor issue. A yeah, flavor yeah. issue. Um, but I am a, I have the understanding that coffee that's too hot will mask some mm-hmm. of its flavor, certainly, or perhaps too cold. Absolutely, yeah. So you can you can be kind of extreme in the middle or on the ends yeah yeah i think there's a couple there's a couple golden zones uh you know you don't want to be too hot because then it's just a struggle to taste it might hurt even you're also there's you know aromatics are volatilizing and it's at a Mm. rate that you can't take them into uh when it's too cold there's just less aromatics so what is your take on cold brew versus this method of hot brewing and then Flash chilling. So that has a lot to do with extraction. Uh, coffee being a, a fruit benefits from some acidity. Uh, you know, a, a fruit with, with no acid and lower sweetness is, is a vegetable. Uh, and so the acidity takes a certain temperature to extract. Uh, we, we typically say so, somewhere around 195 degrees or higher uh, Fahrenheit. And so cold brew, you know, for, for people that are acid sensitive, it can be a really great process to get low, low acid coffee because um, it, just, it just won't extract uh, with lower temperature water. Uh, that said, it does tend to sort of even out every coffee. It makes every coffee taste more similar than different. And, you know, when you're sourcing coffee specifically from all over the world based on flavor attributes, that, that's not necessarily desirable. Right. Uh, you know, people often love it because it's rich. It, it can have a really great texture. People do concentrates with it a lot, which, which is part of that. Uh, and it, it's, people like to use the word smooth a lot, right? Uh, I think that's just, that's just a, a euphemism for low acid, but... Um, kind of a round texture. Yeah, yeah, it's chocolatey and rich, and, and you know, that's delicious. Uh, to get some complexity typically takes some some heat. Uh, people people have this argument about pour overs versus larger batches. There's there's larger thermal stability in, in larger batches, so you can often get a, a more even, more complex cup of coffee that way, unless you're you're really paying attention to your pour over. So we're looking at like Chemex versus uh, Fetco. Sure. Yeah, that's a that's a, a company uh, that makes batch brewers. Curtis is another one that makes fantastic batch brewers. So essentially, they're they're using a similar technique where there's a filter oh, yeah. Yeah. and there's hot water on top. Right. But the amount and the scale 
I guess there's there's more of an eat-in expression with a larger batch. Yeah, it's just easier to do. I mean, mm-hmm. can you imagine how difficult it'd be to make uh, wine a bottle at a time? <laughs> yeah, know, right. it would just be nuts and and totally uh, inconsistent. Yeah, yeah. So that's why I say, unless you're really, really tuned into what you're doing, pour overs can be difficult. I mean, of course they they can be uh, they can be great. I have I I just had a great pour over at, at Slate actually, one of the better cups of coffee I've had in a while. But let's say it's a busy coffee bar, and the barista is really jamming and making all kinds of drinks. If a person doesn't have time to just yeah really sit and be totally focused on one thing yeah the the quality might suffer yeah it'll be inconsistent at best in that scenario uh and and like you know if you're using good quality product it's probably still going to be fine uh but it's probably not going to be as good as it could have been i like the idea of a really dialed in large batch drip because it's essentially a pour over that is done at scale by a machine by machine (laughs) so it's precise and you program it of course to taste right you program temperature and time and and flow rate and all those things uh but then it just does that every time so it's it's rigid you know a lot of people back in the day i think so batch brew kind of got a bad a bad rap because people were letting the coffee sit in those urns for too long Mm -hmm. people weren't cleaning out those urns people we're excited about the idea of being able to serve or to offer their guests, you know, 10 different coffees, mm-hmm. uh, like you might a liquor selection. You know, you, okay, you like whiskey. Do you want something smoky? Do you want some bourbon? Do you want something spicy? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a, that's a hospitality thing. And when you do pour overs by the cup, you, you can do that. And that's really cool. When you have big batch brews, you got the one coffee. Right. And you might be able to switch it when you go to the next one, but that's a little bit less of a opportunity to to match what you what you have to someone's particular tastes so batch brews kind of got a bad rap for a while Mm -hmm. and then we realized well if you do rinse out the urn and (laughs) you do keep it fresh and it can be really really good really really good better even i think uh on average and from a service standpoint you're able to share that coffee with more consistency into a, a quickly quickly yeah it's, I think the... I want to do both, I mean, honestly. Yeah, I think it's important to be able to do both, yeah. but like the cocktail movement for a little while, or maybe currently, suffered from the 10-minute the cocktail. Sure. Right? And I, we can make great drinks, and there's, I think if it's on a menu, pre-batching a, a mix can sure. have a place. And at Liberty, we do about, uh, well, I won't say half and half, we do a lot of pre-batching. Oh. Uh, you know, not, not juices or anything, we're adding juices fresh, but... Uh, when when you have the bones, the structure, the the skeleton of the cocktail all, all ready to go, it just saves time. And... Well, and imagine this of doing a, a pre-batched Manhattan, for example, mm-hmm. uh, with a regular Manhattan. The the bitters component is very much a blunt object of measurement. But let's say you're going to batch a hundred mm-hmm. Manhattans mm-hmm. at once. Mm-hmm. You can get so precise with mm-hmm. the amount of bitters. And then again, consistent. And it's consistent. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, Real benefits there. I think there's great benefits. Um, but I actually went to a, a bar in Phoenix, and they had their menu, 
And of course, the menu didn't say cocktails were pre-batched or anything, but I ordered a zombie because sure. how many cocktail bars do you go to that have a zombie? And they said, well, we ran out of the pre-batch, so we don't know how to make the cocktail. Oh, no. Or Worst we, case we scenario. Won't. Yeah. And it's like, okay, guys, I understand pre-batch is great, but you should still be able to execute the cocktail. Yeah. Um, even if it's a zombie, which is a very a long, long <laughs> yeah. list, but yeah. it wasn't busy. And so I think there's a balance for both. And, and you know, there's something to be said for building the cocktail as far as education goes. You're, you're, you're learning the components of the cocktail as you build it. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's a lot easier for me to remember a cocktail if I've made it a few times versus just read it. Of course. When, when we reprocess the recipe through that physical act of making the drink, there's a lot of connection that's built of like neural connection of being like when your physical body is involved in in making the drink of picking up each bottle and pouring it and measuring it you get really locked in and it becomes automatic i like i do like the notion of building cocktails as if uh, choreographed dance Mm -hmm. you know when you're behind your bar and you know your space then there's specific steps and movements for each each cocktail uh i've always enjoyed that like when I see a ticket and it has the name of that cocktail in there, I'm going to do that dance. I'm yeah. going to do the next one. It like a literal dance move of like a, a sequence right. of my arms are going to go here and I'm going to have to take these two steps over here mm-hmm. and reach for the glass and reach for maybe a special ice or the juicer. And you it, can add your own little flair into there, but you're still doing that dance. The dance. Yeah. And for someone who doesn't have an intentional dance, the flailing is a, <laughs> like a modern, modern. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. And well, and it's pretty obvious too. Yeah. You're in a different space or something like that. It's, it's disorienting. It's, it can be even hard to remember a recipe without the physical aspect of, of the dance. Like you take the same recipe and go into someone else's bar yeah. and the flow won't be the same. Yeah. And I find that for me, it takes a couple hours to get into a mm-hmm. real rhythm in a space and you feel yourself doing it when you start to get in that rhythm you're like okay i got it now it's it's in the body my my hand is moving before my mind even knows like it's you see the ticket and your hands just know yeah right where to go where you can even make eye contact with a guest and be making the drink it's a beautiful feeling it's it's incredible Um, so in your experience at liberty is it a kind of a balance between menu drinks and uh, just custom orders? Yeah, well, I, I almost say it's in thirds between spirit requests, bespoke cocktails, and menu cocktails. Uh, give or take a, a certain day, but we get to do a lot of flights and things too, which is really nice. People say, mm-hmm. well, I came here to drink some mezcal. Uh, I can't decide between this or this. And we'll say, well, hey, why don't why don't you get four half-ounce pours? We'll do a flight for you. We'll talk you through it. and That way, it's still one drink. You know, we're not leaving anybody... Uh, unable to walk out the door yeah uh, but you still get four different sort of flavor experiences and half ounce is plenty to experience a, a, a beverage sure and then it's fun we get you know we, we get to meet some of these mezcal producers or or distillers of whiskey or what have you and just share those stories in that format it's, it's fun it's really a community venue where you have a lot of events going on there oh yeah um, we try to be the best neighborhood bar we can yeah, and it's an elevated experience from an average neighborhood bar where 
you're you've got a lot of intention behind your program. Certainly. Well, yeah. E- even so far as to say, it doesn't have to be elevated. You need, you know, you want your your Rainier in a bottle, and your shot of well whiskey. I got you. We have that. Or then you want some like fancy Holy Mountain, uh, you know, secondary fermented uh, Britannomyces. Saison. Uh, yeah, you know. exactly. We got that too. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully we can, and maybe you guys are there, be in a place where the shot in the beer and the elevated cocktail or specialty beer are treated with the same, the same feeling. Well, yeah, well, w- when the goal is to give the person the experience they came there to have in the best way we can, then I think that's easy, you know. Uh, I had one experience, this was really fun, where four, a group of four came in and they were definitely there to experience some cocktails. Uh, one of them ordered, we have a drink called a Tiki Kitty. It's a tiki glass that's, that's a cat. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> usually involves some fire and, and you know, that sort of, sort of tiki style. Uh, people ordering uh, black walnut, uh, old fashioned, uh, among other drinks, and then the last guy orders a vodka soda, and his friends are kind of like, "Well, no, man, you know we're here to do the cocktails." Like, you should, he's like, "No, it's fine." It's like, "I'll make you vodka soda," and so you know, I, I put that in a crystal glass and hollowed out a, a, a citrus uh, thing, put some fire in it, you know, yeah. and garnished the crap out of it, and brought it over the table. I, I brought everyone else's drinks there first. And then I dropped his down, and all his friends are looking at all the garnishes on it, and they're like, "Whoa!" <laughs> and he looks up to his friends and goes, "See," <laughs> which which made me laugh, but <laughs> he, as if he was expecting that, you know. He like, knew <laughs> he was trying to be contrary, but then yeah, yeah, it was really fun. Like, it's the kind of place where that sort of thing can happen, you know. Like, yeah, he definitely felt like he got the better end of that deal. Of course. <laughs> and he's drinking exactly what he wanted, you know? And I, I think it's a fact that not everyone needs a really elaborate um, ceremony. Sure. But to be able to elevate uh, a, a simple drink, a simple recipe into an experience is a special thing. Uh, and also to acknowledge someone's mood and, and give them uh, something that's not elaborate. That's good hospitality. Absolutely, yeah. You know, and, and we're open all day, too. We open at 9 a.m. for coffee. So we get a lot of people coming in to, to read or study or, or work or what have you. And they're definitely not there to have this cocktail experience. Yeah. You know, if they were, we could do that, too. That's fine. But at this point, we're, we're there to provide some sustenance, maybe some caffeine, maybe uh, a beer when the day gets going and, mm-hmm. and provide that venue for them. So being able to shift between service models, too. Uh, helps a lot. Well, I think it's interesting that the menu for food is sushi. Mm, yeah. Um, I bet that's rather um, flexible as far as pairings and, and a, certainly, you know, a lot of options there. We, uh, we, we've greatly increased our fortified and aromatized wine list recently. Yeah. Uh, for that reason, actually, we, we, we run dinerware as a POS. We created a different category. For, uh, fortified wines just i don't know two days ago yeah uh, because we realized we had so many and they were sort of cluttering up our other buttons so. <laughs> uh, but but with the fish with the sushi the, the low alcohol sort of thing uh but the different complexities you get with that are oh, yeah. super fun so we're actually playing a lot with low alcohol cocktails now i love it 
I do too. I love it. It's a ton of fun. And you can drink more than, you know, a couple of them because they're half quarter of the alcohol, depending on what you're doing. And those are great lunch cocktails because they don't get you down through the rest of the day. You can have a drink, have some sushi for lunch, and then go back to work and be okay. And And we, you know, we oscillate between a, a more, I don't know, traditional sushi style and then you know, I don't know if you want to say Americanized or different flavor uh, uh, influences in sushi format. Spicy crunchy rolls. And... Exactly right, you know. Uh, and we, we've had poke forever, but that's a huge thing in Seattle right now. It's, you can't turn a corner without running into a poke restaurant. I wonder if Pokemon Go, like, <laughs> well, so we have encouraged a, that. We have a seaweed roll called uh, a Pokemon, <laughs> but it's like pokey. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we don't shy away from the puns at Liberty either. So you've been there for quite some time. Yeah, I've been there for years now, uh, and I was a guest for three years before I started working there. Even yeah, so I've been. I used to live around the corner, so it was my neighborhood bar before it was anything else for me, uh, which is pretty fun to be behind it now. Were you in coffee or in the bar world first? Coffee first. Uh, maybe ironically, I actually got into the bar world because of coffee, also. Uh, when, uh, when the aforementioned Nick Ferre and I were, were leaving Zoka to go help start Slate Coffee Roasters, we, we definitely wanted to do a sort of the sort of style of hospitality that you can get in nice cocktail bars where you offer people a seat and a glass of water and that whole thing. Mm-hmm. And so I, I figured I'd better work in a cocktail bar to figure out exactly what that was like yeah. before we were going to construct the space. And that's actually what got me into to bartending in the first place. So I was going to Liberty Bar. I got I was I got hired as a bar back at Tavern Law. Oh yeah. And then uh, shortly thereafter, started bartending at Babar down the street. What time period are we talking? It's got to be four years ago. Okay. Five years ago, somewhere in there. Four years ago, I think. So, two thousand thirteen. Thirteen, yeah. Twelve, two thousand twelve to thirteen. I think, I think we started doing the groundwork for Slate in two thousand twelve. And now. Years later, there's Ballard, there's Pioneer mm. Square. It's four locations now. Where else? Plus a roastery. So, yeah, Ballard, Pioneer Square, there's one in the U District. And okay. then, uh, you're familiar with Chrome Bags, like the Messenger Bag? Yeah. There's a Chrome store downtown, right mm-hmm. by Hartwood for Prisons, actually. Yep. Like two doors up, and there's a, a small little, I would call it a pop-up, except it's not going to pop down. It's, it, it's, <laughs> uh, it's, it's a really cool little space in there. Uh, in the Chrome store? In the Chrome store. That's cool when you have kind of a, a dual purpose uh, venue like that. It's super cool. Yeah. Reminds me of actually um, the bar where you were working in Pioneer Square. Um, e. Smith. e. Smith Mercantile. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of a dual purpose space in there. Yeah. Yeah. Mercantile shop and uh, little 14 seat bar in the back. That was a cool spot. It's so much fun. I, I do miss it. Shout out to them. They're expanding their space actually. I saw cool. a bunch of photos of. Uh, the ladies with sledgehammers knocking down some walls. Wow. Yeah. So is it closed for the remodel right now? I don't actually know if they're closed. I keep seeing stuff on Instagram. I I could see it either way. I mean, their shop, I think, is still open. Uh, but the construction's right by where the bar is. So I'm not sure if that's open or not at the moment. Uh, I'll have to go check that out soon. I owe them a visit anyhow. Yeah, for sure. That was a fun little bar. So a little bit earlier, you were talking about competitions mm-hmm. with coffee mm-hmm. and that's an area that i 
have heard you speak of before and don't know too much about myself, uh, <laughs> lay it on me. Yeah. It gets deep. Well, let's get into it. Well, so coffee competitions in particular, there's a number of them now. There's probably five different really big ones. And, and they're different things that you're competing in. There's a, there's a Brewer's Cup, which is effectively a, a pour-over competition. It doesn't have to be pour-over. You could, you could bring in a French press or whatever. It's a buy-the-cup brew competition. And there's that one's really cool. I, I, I've competed in that a couple times. Uh, done pretty well. Uh, it involves everyone getting the exact same coffee. You don't know what it is. And you have a certain amount of time to figure out how to best brew it. You go up uh, on stage and, and you brew three of them. And then those are blindly tasted against all the others. Scored. So that's one component. And then there's an open service component where you're bringing your own coffee. Mm-hmm. Brewing that in a particular way and presenting that, actually, to a panel of judges. Mm-hmm. Uh, who score, you know, your professionalism and, and what you talk about and how and why. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're sort of broad coffee knowledge and, and then also accuracy of flavor descriptions and then also how good the coffee is yeah uh, that's a really fun competition the one I was doing most recently though is an espresso based competition and this is a pretty rigorous format it's like 27 pages of rules <laughs> <laughs> uh, which which those rules are my friends I, I carry those around with me yeah um, you're participating or judging so I, there was, uh, I competed in the qualifier. There's two qualifiers. There's one in Knoxville in January, and there's one in Austin just about three weeks ago. And something like the top 25% make it into a national competition, the top 36 in the country. Uh, I made it through. So, and that's, that's in Seattle this year. So I don't have to go anywhere. Convenient. Convenient. I can sleep in my own bed. Uh, and just bought some coffee for that too. Hmm. Very expensive. When is that happening? It's mid-April. I think it's maybe it's 17th or something like that. Oh, coming right up. Yeah, thanks for reminding me. (laughs) (laughs) I know, it feels that way. It does. But that's cool. It's fun. It's uh it's you you do four espressos, four milk-based beverages, and then four signature drinks in uh 15 minutes and talking about it and judging on technique and everything. What's an example of a signature drink? Well, so you add so you add other ingredients to complement the coffee. No alcohol. There's a different competition for that. Uh, and you know it still has to be espresso forward. It's you know, cocktail wise. You might think of a spirit forward drink. You're not trying to mask the spirit. You're trying to bring out other co- components of it or, or or use it as an ingredient in a beverage. That uh, you know higher scoring ones will use that coffee in particular. Like you can't just sub out one coffee for another uh it it, it's something specifically about that coffee that makes it work in this beverage so uh i had a friend who who had a coffee that was really floral and so she took rose hips and she uh processed them in three different ways basically she made a a shrub out of them she made a, a syrup out of it and uh something else that I'm blanking on right now and used all those as components in her coffee to accentuate the florality of it, uh, which I thought was pretty cool. I did a, I did a, a, a coconut milk, pomegranate molasses sort of deal. So it's quite a lot like a 
cocktail just without alcohol. Very much so. Uh, a lot of competitors pretty explicitly use some cocktail uh, influence. People, a lot of people making espresso old fashioned sort of thing. Uh, I actually did. I made. Uh, it's part of the roasting process. You get this. It's called chaff. It's almost like uh, you know a papery bit around a peanut. You think of that little sort of paper feel to it. Oh, sure. And when you when you roast the coffee, it, it pops open like popcorn does, mm-hmm. and that chaff falls off. Like a husk. Yeah, it's like a husk. Yeah. Uh, and so that's generally discarded, or you know, you might think of like uh, uh, stuff you put in a chicken coop or something. It's very much like that. So I made a bitters out of that. Uh, just really boiling it down. That's cool. Uh, it was pretty cool. It was you know part of part of what I was talking about was good stewardship. And, uh, you know, it's sort of environmental bent. And so using a resource that's otherwise thrown away to make something delicious uh, was, was a way that I accentuated that with my signature drink. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the farm that I was sourcing the coffee from in Colombia, Granja La Esperanza, they, uh, they do this really well. They, they're very careful about their water usage and about... Uh, not polluting the local streams and, 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 and just managing resources well. And so... So they're environmental stewards. And... Yeah, yeah. And their coffee's delicious. And so I was I was sort of using my signature drink to to follow in their footsteps with that. Sure. So, so the chaff bitters became a component of it. There, there are points for unique ingredients and, and unique techniques. Someone made ice cream on stage once. Liquid nitrogen, you know, that whole thing. People get pretty crazy with it. The, the gal who won in, um, in Austin... Andrea Allen, she is incredible. She owns Onyx Coffee Lab in Arkansas. Mm-hmm. And she actually, uh, she talked about the hospitality that she's felt when she's gone on trips uh, to visit farms. These people who, who maybe don't have a ton to give are just giving mm. of themselves. And, and she felt compelled to try to pass that on. And so as part of her drink, she actually washed the hands of her judges uh, in uh, a bath, a water bath that had some some rose water in it, and that became oh. an aromatic component of her signature drink. Uh, it was phenomenal. That's that's the, amazing. There's a there's still a buzz. This is three weeks ago. And there's still a little bit of a buzz about that in the cocktail wow. community or in the cocktail in the barista community. Um, never seen that before. It was amazing. Uh, a lot of people teared up a little bit. <sighs> You know, it was a pretty impactful moment, and uh, and that's really getting a, a literal the physical, physical connection. Yeah, 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 yeah. Wow. And you know, one of her judges was a former world champion. So who is that? Uh, his name is Mike Phillips. Okay. Uh, he he helped start Handsome Coffee Roasters in L.A. and he now works for Blue Bottle uh, as a director of training. Great, great, great dude, great dude. Yeah. Uh, big, uh, big uh, advocate of baristas these days. So you know, he's volunteering as a judge. He doesn't have to do that, but. He is, and, and so he got to be on the receiving end of that. It almost seemed like his eye was glistening, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, like it, this is... he, he felt it. He really did. Uh, so it was cool. It was really cool to see. Uh, that, so you that's my competition now, so... Wow, that's so involved. <laughs> you mentioned the, the milk-based drinks, mm. and... They call them milkies. Milkies. <laughs> um, if, you, if you could help me out, remind me, starting with smallest... Yeah. Well, let's let's go through them. Let's do it. So so the most traditional de- uh, definitions you'll get here, uh, you have an espresso, and if you add uh, in some places a dollop of foam to that, you'll call it a macchiato. 
in some places it's it's about a two to one ratio of, of milk to uh, espresso. There's heated debates about this. <laughs> you you can go up to a cortado, which is typically about four five ounces, uh, and then there's sort of a subgenre of that which you might call a Gibraltar, which is a kind of glass. The literal name of the glass. Uh, this is a blue bottle thing down, down in the bay. Uh, from there you have a cappuccino, which in in Italy is is five six ounces. Uh, and a lot of people will argue for the rule of thirds, a third foam, a third milk, a third espresso. So you're, you're roughly one and a half to two ounces of each of those. Um, because of that foam content, some people associate a cappuccino with a ton of foam. And so you'll see a beverage of any size, but it's just foamy, called a cappuccino as well. So there's, there's some discrepancy there. And then effectively anything higher than that we'll call a latte. Um, but those are your milk drinks. What are ideal volumes of each so that if I go to my neighborhood coffee shop, probably the closest one would be Vita down the street or Vive, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I say I want, would it be a 12-ounce latte, 8-ounce? Yeah. So this depends a lot on intensity of the coffee, uh, which has to do with roast levels. Uh, a lot of times, the sort of the sort of charred flavors uh, go really well with fat. You think about a steak, right? Like, a, like some charred bits on the end of like a grilled steak or something can be really nice, mm -hmm. uh, or a sausage or something. Oh yeah. And so, a lot of people will use darker roasted coffee for milk-based beverages because you're getting the fat from the milk, and, and the coffee will shine through. And the coffee, yeah, yeah, and you'll get this really great experience. Uh, the lighter that coffee is roasted the more complex it tends to be on its own, the more indicative of where it came from, more, more terroir-driven uh, it is, but the less it'll shine through in milk. So I would say if you're going for complexity and or lighter roast, if you, if you like that complexity or if you like the sort of acid balance of a lighter roast, which mm -hmm. tends to be higher acid, uh, get a smaller beverage, smaller milk-based beverage. Uh, your macchiato, your cortado, your, your cappuccino, something like that. Are there, let's say, competition standards for sizing on... So there were. There were. It used to be a cappuccino, which was, uh, if I remember correctly, 125 to 175 milliliter beverage, like five to six ounce in there. Uh, singles. Single espressos. Uh, in the U.S., we typically do most things as doubles. Uh, most shops will. Can They're... you break that down real quick? I, I've always been confused about single versus double well frankly me too <laughs> because this it's a it's a it's a remnant from italy where uh a, a basket that you're going to put some ground coffee into and then put in an espresso machine uh would typically hold seven grams of coffee for one espresso so that's where the single comes from so a double might be a 14 gram basket uh that's gonna give you out two coffees so that's where those come from that language translated to ounces in the u.s at one point um where a single is a single ounce and a double is a double ounce but the reason that's confusing is because that's mostly just water that you're running through there that volume that you're getting is just water so no matter how much ground coffee you put in that little guy you can just keep running water through it till you hit one or two ounces so in the U.S., those are nearly meaningless terms. 
or or rather they're so particular to the individual shop you're going to as to not be translatable across shops it's arbitrary it's completely arbitrary and it's really confusing when someone walks into your shop and says you know i have a triple latte and they triple what yeah three what i don't know and, and, and you don't know but wherever you you were at that meant something and so you kind of learn that language it, it gets really confusing but most people in the U.S. are using more between 18 and 20 grams of coffee for an espresso. For an espresso. So that's and why I call it a double. What's final output? Anywhere between, well, mo- the modern style is going to be 30 to 50. Would with, you... With some outliers on either end. If you're going to make, let's say, a, is a shot of espresso the term you, you would use? <laughs> sure. Yeah, that's intelligible to me. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, I, let's I, say I a shot of espresso yeah. where I'm going to have an espresso neat. Are you going to do the same thing then with a latte of, will it, will the output be the same? Depends on the shop. Uh, v, uh, Vivachi. Like you. Me. Well, you. Depends on the coffee. Depends on the coffee. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, and there, there are different uh, arguments to be made here too. You can do something much more concentrated mm-hmm. as an espresso to pour, pour milk into because that way you're going to you know unconcentrate that flavor and it'll kind of shine once you add milk mm-hmm. versus if I'm drinking it by its own you're going to want to add a little bit of water to open it up much like a whiskey or something right and so that it's not too heavy on the palate yeah uh, espresso tends to get salty when it's too concentrated okay which isn't necessarily desirable so you're going to adjust it depending on yeah. on the yeah. application uh, let's say you're training someone who's going to need to just have a, a rubric. Yep. Um, I'd say just do the same thing. 20, 20 grams in, 50 grams out kind of thing? or I, I started at 1 to 2. 20 to 40. 20 to 40? Yeah. It's a good place as any to start. Uh, you'll get a great idea of what's going on, and you'll be able to make an adjustment. And I always say three-move checkmate. You know, like you, you should be able to figure out a coffee in, in, in three adjustments. You, you do your standard one. You're like, you know what? That's uh, It's really watery. So you gotta ha- you kind of have to adjust the grind. So you're changing the flow rate. So you're still hitting a certain amount of time that you want, but yeah. at a different volume. So, so this is like this is when you're starting your shift, sure. getting yeah. getting your stuff dialed in. Or you might switch out a coffee, or uh, things might change throughout the day too. There's there's a number of reasons for that. Uh, humidity or or the motor heating up the coffee, making it more pliable, making it fracture in a different way. So you do the first one, and let's say it's it's a low mark. You do the second one; it's a high mark. The third one will kind of split the difference. And sure, and yeah, yeah, yeah. And you, you know, within like a really small window where you're trying to hit, and and you might you might kind of wiggle around in that area, but it should be right around that area. And if you're getting your coffee consistently roasted, consistently sourced on the same equipment, it shouldn't really be that different. You should know pretty well what you're doing. Because factors that can change it would be um, the actual coffee itself, mm-hmm. how it's roasted, how it's ground, ground grind size, grind consistency, mm-hmm. water temperature, yep, water clarity, composition. Yeah, yeah, that's, composition. that's a huge one. Yeah, and then the machine itself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So a lot of variables. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's something, uh, you, you know. Uh, uh, oh, I forget his first name right now, but Illy. Uh, this guy, this guy, uh, you know, you've probably seen the Illy coffee around. Yeah. Huge, huge all over the place. The, yeah. uh, Ernesto. There you go. Ernesto Illy 
wrote a book about espresso that is that he was like a, he was a chemist mm. and uh, it's still today one of the most in-depth books about espresso out there it's really expensive and it's hard to find i have one nerd uh <laughs> and uh he says something that there's something like twelve thousand variables that influence an espresso and the barista controls about 150 of them so like once wow. it gets to you there's a lot you have control over but it's not that much uh in the grand scheme of things you know and that that's that might be somewhat of an arbitrary number we might adjust that a little bit now but i i think it's it still holds it's pretty true so really it's like if you got a good product and your water's good because you know that's at least 90 percent of your beverage is, is the water you're using mm-hmm. you talk to any any scotch maker and they'll talk to you all about water uh then you know you're probably pretty good your your the coffee is going to be pretty hard to screw up um if you if you have a basic understanding there's there's gradations there there's there's good and there's unbelievable well and i think there's probably a set of best practices for any barista of keeping equipment clean yeah and and knowing basic techniques about well and to their credit this is what a lot of the competition is based on is about best practices so that anybody who goes through competition will be sort of calibrated to these best practices and it becomes a really great industry standard and you know just the attention to detail with you know they're marking points off if there's there's coffee spilled on the counter (laughs) at all anywhere Mm -hmm. you know uh I imagine it's similar with with the sort of service portion of uh, sommelier exam. Like you get a, a, a drop of wine somewhere else that's not in a glass, and sure, you're done. It's noticed. Yeah, it's noticed. Yeah, so you have you actually do have two technical judges on either side of you in the in the barista competition, watching your every move, getting down to make sure that tamp when you pack that coffee in there is level perfectly, not right? angled, not angled. Yeah, making sure that if you're uh, if you're tapping the side of the basket to kind of settle. The ground's down in there. You're doing it the exact same amount of time. Like it's like they're making little tick marks on their mm-hmm. on their sheets. Uh, it's it's really precise. But man, you come out of that so much better. So they're they're paying attention to the technical aspects. Oh yeah. Is there also points given to interaction? Yep. Yep. There's a uh, like overall impression score. There's a, a professionalism score. There's a attention to detail score. Mm-hmm. I was actually I was fortunate that one of my judges when he was getting into his chair this last most recent time bumped the table before this is before the clock had started before i was allowed to start doing anything knocked my water pitcher over not over over but sloshed the water out Mm -hmm. so there's just water all over the table when i started and so i immediately you know I, i started my time and i started i introduced myself and i started going and i wiped it up you know just continue on what I was doing before I poured water for everybody. Yeah. And, and because of that, my attention to detail scores were just way up. Way up. Well, it's like in a sommelier exam, um, I'm not familiar with how they grade on the back end, but uh, they, the guests in the scenarios will have uh, a mock. It'll be like a pretend restaurant scenario, yeah, and they'll yeah, have water yeah. glasses. And if the water glasses sit empty and there's crumbs on the table... You gotta you gotta address those things right. because right. you have to take care of your your guests. It's not just about selling an expensive wine and talking about subregions. Sure, right, know? right, right. It's, because because it's it's meant to mimic something that you might actually encounter. Right. So that you benefit from it from going through it. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Yeah. So there's there's this balance between technical service, which is very important. So both with making coffee and and having your uh, temps yeah. the same number of yeah. times, or yeah. with yeah. wine of having a clean serviette and and a good cut on your foil of the bottle. That's service. And then hospitality is how you welcome the guests and make them feel and take care yeah. of them. Yeah. And both have to be there. Well, I think of the technical aspect of, of things that your guests should never notice because it's so effortless. Effortless. Right? It's just, when it, if I'm struggling to get the coffee in the basket and I'm, you know, making gesticulation, they're noticing, they're like, does this guy even know what he's doing? You know? Whereas if I'm just chatting them up the whole time and they don't even realize I've made them coffee, then suddenly there's coffee here. Yeah. That's a great experience. The, the actual physical act gets elevated in our minds because we do it so much yeah. but really the point is i'm going to connect with a guest get them excited about what they're what's going on and it's really not necessarily just the act that is the show but it's how do we interact to make this experience happen yeah the things that i know that i'm doing so that you don't have to know that i'm doing them you know what i mean People come into Liberty all the time and they'll say, well, okay, I want some whiskey, but I don't know what these are. And say, That's okay. That's my job. <laughs> That's what I'm getting paid to do here. Like, yeah. let me help you. Yeah. Uh, you know, you're not supposed to know those things, you know, that then I would be out of a job if everyone knew those things. Can I ask you a question? Uh, besides that one? That, was a, that, that <laughs> itself was a rhetorical question. Yeah, okay. I would love to pour you some bubbles. Please, please, Is please, that please, right? please. That would be fantastic. And... Tell me a bit about any other projects you've got going on in the works. Well, so the roasting project was kind of an accident, I'll be honest. Uh, I started roasting and selling to friends, and uh, one of those friends put some of my coffee on a table with a bunch of other coffees when uh, somebody was, when, when No Anchor was, was looking to source some coffees, and they tasted it blind and decided they liked it pretty well. And so since they, we knew each other, they decided to buy from me. So I've been kind of scrambling to get some uh, packaging and get some logo work. I'm calling it foreigner coffee, by the way. Uh, foreigner meaning something that's not from here. Coffee is, is not from another place. Uh, I'm doing a lot of events. I got to do a whiskey tasting at Ada's uh, Coffee Books a little bit ago. Oh, yeah. I love that place. Uh, they, they just opened an event space. And uh, they're holding some tastings and educational classes and things there. Uh, so they asked me to do a, a whiskey tasting. I, I brought them through four different American whiskeys, different styles. Very cool. Super fun. Super fun. Uh, what is this? This is called Altamasi. Mm -hmm. And it is a traditional method sparkling wine from northern Italy. The region is called Trento, D-O-C. And it's pa dosé, so no sugar added uh -huh. uh, after uh, the second fermentation. So it's um, it's very light and delicate, but spends quite a long time on the lees during that second fermentation. Which, as those lees cells, uh, the cells break down, it's a process called autolysis, and it lends a lot of flavor to the the final wine. And many traditional method wines go through this extended lees aging process and it offers character and flavor to an otherwise neutral grape so mm -hmm. 
for Chardonnay, which doesn't have any flavor on its own, it needs things like Lee's Contact, uh, malolactic conversion, and oak impact to aromatize and, and yeah, give flavor. Yeah, yeah. Just like with, with grain whiskey, white lightning on itself isn't very palatable and, and doesn't have a lot of complexity. Right. So oak is used to... Corn uh, juice. Yeah, corn juice. So oak is used to uh, mellow and uh, add richness and complexity Depth, to yeah. the spirit. So. I like... Uh, I, a lot of what we do, and I don't know how explicitly this is talked about, is I think when we study things like wine or coffee or spirits, a lot of what we're trying to do is connect what happened to it with what it tastes like. You know what I mean? To, to be able to explain via process or technique or something the flavors that are in the glass. Mm -hmm. uh, and I find, I find those are often a lot of more compelling things that I'll, I'll talk with guests about. It's, they'll notice, oh, this tastes different, but maybe not have a vocabulary say for why that is. And then when you can say, yes, it does, and, and here's why, here's what happened to it, that's it's rare. I mean, how often do you get to do that? You know, you might you might be eating a really great apple, but why is that apple so good? Why you is know? it so good? It's a variety, but you might have had that variety before and it wasn't that good. Why is that good? I don't know. I have no idea why that apple is so good. It's a mystery. It's a mystery. But we get to we get to talk about processes and 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 their impact on flavor. It's a big thing. When I talk about this sort of renaissance that's happened with coffee in the last 20 years mm -hmm. a lot of it was connecting those those dots like oh, okay if we do these things we often get these results uh the the world barista champion from two years ago actually used carbonic maceration really with his coffee uh which i think is fascinating that's super cool <laughs> uh a sort of I don't know. Is it a derided technique in winemaking? Is it? No, it's it's frequently used in winemaking. And uh, to briefly explain explain carbonic for short, uh, it's taking whole clusters of berries. In the coffee example, I assume whole coffee cherries, mm -hmm. putting them in an anaerobic environment. Yeah. So, in the sealed. absence sealed in the absence absence of oxygen, and then introducing carbon dioxide, and as fermentation starts to happen uh, through yeast and other microorganisms, the whole berries for wine will explode uh, because of the pressure. And there's a ton of fruitiness and aromatic character that is gained through carbonic. And I assume that in coffee production, the raw fruit has to go through a processing before it can be ready to uh, have. Well, the... so in this case, I believe, and I'm not 100% certain on this, but I'm pretty sure this is the case, that the coffee is pulped first. And, and you know, much like an apricot pit or a plum pit, you can eat the fruit and there's this kind of sticky layer on the outside of the pit that's really hard to get off. Yeah. Uh, for coffee, they call it mucilage. And... This is, this is often why coffee is fermented, because yeast and, and other microorganisms will start to break that down, and it'll separate, and then they run it through a bath. They wash it off. That's called a wash process coffee. Uh, that's a really rudimentary uh, explanation of it, but... Uh, differing, so the, differing from natural process coffee. Which is fruit left on, and it's dried, which you have other issues. You, you know, like anytime you leave fruit out for a month, 
it's going to start to grow. <laughs> grow fuzzies. <laughs> yeah, grow fuzzies, yeah. Uh, and so it's a really controlled drying process for natural processed coffee. But, but they typically... So I think in this example, they, they pulped the fruit off, leaving the mucilage. And that's what they threw uh, into a, a carbonic tank. Uh, because moisture content's an issue uh, in general for coffee. And there's still a lot of moisture in the mucilage, but too much can be a problem. Because you're not actually after the juice in this case. You're after the seeds. The seeds. So it's still imparting flavor just by being in, in, in the process. Right. But uh, I don't know. I don't know if there's a good analog here. Like, I wonder if the stems taste different before and after they go through. Uh, Probably. I would assume so. But So in wine, we're talking about carbonic happening a lot with uh, Cabernet Franc in sure. the Loire, uh, Gamay Noir in Beaujolais. Okay, that's where I'm familiar with it. Uh, even Syrah in the in really? Rhone. Really? Yeah. Maybe even Pinot Noir sometimes. Um, and it it lends to wines that are very uh, fruity and lively, uh, have a lot of brightness and character. And stems are often a point of aromatic complexity as well. Mm-hmm. And can lend tannin to a wine like Gamay or Pinot Noir, which on a, um, on a de-stemmed fruit example wouldn't have tannin. The stems give a lot of Because are they thinner feel. skinned? Is that why? Yes. Yeah. So unlike a Cabernet Sauvignon um, or even like a Nebbiolo that has um, a lot of tannin in, in phenolics in the skins, Pinot Noir, Cabernet Franc, less tannin in the skin itself. So the stems give it that, uh, that grip that you'll sure. feel on the palate. And carbonic is a great way to add fruitiness as well. Cool. It's, it's amazing how many crossovers we're seeing between wine and coffee. Well, I think, you know, this was a case where he was particularly searching for mm-hmm. a way to sort of bring a wow factor, right? Like oh, sure. He, here's this technique that's used in wine and it is, you know, fairly common. And I'm going to apply it to coffee that is just never, that's just never been done before. And so he had a good enough relationship with his farmer in Colombia. Uh, there was enough trust there and also the sort of financial mm-hmm. backing to say, I don't know if this is going to work. We're going to buy it regardless so that you're paid uh, to do that. Um, but in a lot of cases, I think there's a, a sort of natural overlap that that could be explored a lot more. Well, we're talking about an agricultural fruit product. Uh-huh. Yeah. And there perhaps is some terroir or a distinctive character with grains. If we're talking about beer or spirits, but I think there's so much to be said about the the farming methods and the you know the resulting yeah. fruit with both coffee and wine. Uh, and then we were talking about the aromas and flavors, the whole vocabulary. I think tons of crossover there as well. So, well, I think the the, the I don't know farm level technique is something I, I'm I'm particularly really excited about with coffee, and I think there's probably a lot to learn from wine. Or coffee i'm not sure but there i mean even just the notion of aerobic or anaerobic fermentation mm-hmm. there's there are old methods in in ethiopia where they're fermenting underwater which is anaerobic right in a way 
but totally different uh, from from a carbonic uh, process. But so with coffee fermentation, what what exactly is happening there? Because it's not is it alcohol that's being produced? Hopefully not. No. 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 So what's what's the conversion <laughs> that's going on? Yeah, I mean, again, the goal is to just get the mucilage off. Uh, there's a, a, a ton of complexity that's created though in the process. You can notice there, there are coffees from El Salvador that are handled in a way like they do in Kenya mm-hmm. uh, that tastes more like a Kenyan coffee. So there's, there's some... So process is affecting yeah. the result quite a bit. Yeah, and we associate that with terroir because these certain things are, are traditional in certain places. But you can do them anywhere. Uh, so in, in that case, they, they sort of, they dry from it for a long time. It's a very dry so, atmosphere. But what is occurring during that time? Yeah. Yeah. There's, there, there are people writing PhDs about this right now. Okay. I, I don't, I, I, I don't know how much I could even offer as conjecture. Um, so it, it's sugar term, is definitely being eaten. Sugar is being eaten by, a, <laughs> by a micro, yeast. by, by yeast and by other microorganisms and bacteria. Yeah. Yeah, there's uh, there are certain bacteria that like to come in at certain pH levels, so the the yeast tend to change the pH balance in a sort of environment mm-hmm. that'll that'll attract other bacteria, and that can be horrible <laughs> in certain cases. Uh, Is lower pH sought after? There's a window. Uh, there's a window for sure. I, I believe it's in the four-ish area. Okay. Um, FYI, most coffee is 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 five and a half ish pH, just a little bit of acid. So so lower acid than wine, which is between three and four. Yeah, lower acid. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I think part of that's well, lower pH. Acid is a separate. In this perceived acidity. Yeah. 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 So, but I mean, part of that I think is roasting because some acids do break down uh, in the roasting process. But sure. Um, but yeah, so so a lot's happening, and and it seems I've had this discussion with a with a, a coffee grower in in Colombia that the elevation of fermentation seems to make a big difference. Mm. Uh, some of that is temperature, and then that affects microorganisms. Some of that is literal terroir, um, and and sort of the the microorganisms that are able to live at certain elevations. Uh, it always seemed to me that coffee that's fermented at a higher elevation was more complex, had more sort of top notes, brighter notes, mm-hmm. floral qualities. Um, and I don't know, that's not something I hear a lot of discussion about, but it's something I'm wildly curious about. And so, like I said, this research is being done right now. It's, it's kind of amazing that for a, 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 a huge industry by mm-hmm. volume, you know, second largest uh traded commodity in the world to oil uh there's just not that much research <laughs> that's been done on it yeah it seems like it's, it's just taking off and in, in the last 10 20 years right it's exciting time because yeah of that. yeah and same is happening with with wine and with other beverages as well i think we're in a renaissance of sorts of taste mm. because you know early aughts mid aughts cocktails mm-hmm with that resurgence and beer too, beer, you know, home brewing and micro brewing and even macro brewing is, is changing. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I never Um, thought about macro brewing coffee. I think 
along with that, we're seeing a whole restaurant culture that, that is blossoming. But now we're, we're in another stage where a lot of the restaurants that opened to capture that surge of energy have closed. Like there's, there was an initial wave and now um, concepts are changing or places are closing down. And a, there's a few places that are, have, have hung on through that. Um, but we're seeing some change here in Seattle for sure. Yeah, what do, I, I agree with you, but I'm curious what you're thinking of specifically when you say that. So seeing um, a lot of the you know, old restaurants in Seattle that have closed uh, or, or changed hands, so like Charlie's on Broadway, yeah, that's old school. Yeah. But then in Capitol Hill uh, on, was it Chop House Row? Uh-huh. You know what I'm talking about? Uh-huh. There was, was it Chop Shop? Yeah. That, that was one of these brand new places that I see. Yeah. opened yeah. and yeah. then closed down. Yep. Hey, really, bud. Really good people involved good. in it, too. Come on in. We're, we're just finishing up a, a podcast recording. Oh, right on. Yeah. 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 Um, but, yeah, so there's this, I think, this market that's established um, by the enthusiasm for for craft cocktails, wine, uh, fine dining food, and then I don't know. I'm 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 kind of working through this concept as we're talking about. Well, it. sure. So one, so I was actually talking. Uh, speaking of Cameron George, we were, we were talking at, at Canon the other day about. I asked him if he thought there was too many bars in Seattle, and I think you could you could expand that to restaurants. Yeah, because there's a lot, <laughs> you know. We see this trend with, I don't know, Amazon and everything, where a lot of retail shops are going out of business because you can buy things online. So why have a storefront? You could save on rent right? and, and sell the same thing online. And so there's all these storefronts available. And I think you saw some restaurants and bars and things occupy those spaces. But what that means is, is there's that much more competition mm-hmm. and uh, the sort of talent pool of, of experienced bartenders, chefs, cooks, what have you, is spread thinner and thinner. Uh, and I'm wondering what that does. I, I'm, not, I'm not convinced that that's the case, but I, it's something I wonder about. Yeah, I'm curious about the same thing. And you compound that with all the new construction in Seattle having yeah. up, apartments up top and then this retail space underneath, which the intention is to have shops opening up and if that happens in every neighborhood on every street street corner, <laughs> it it floods the market with all these new small businesses. There's but not enough people to go to them. There's not enough people, and it. And yet, there's so many people. Yeah, so I think what we'll see happening is a lot of development, new businesses opening up, and then uh, there will be kind of an exodus of places that can't make it and close after a year uh, or or two or three, and it's a it's an ever changing world that we're in. When you can open a wine bar, you know I. It's not on the short list right now. I'm okay. um, doing a virtual wine shop though. Are you really? Yeah. Cool. So cool, cool. It's actually going to be launching in April, uh, called Vine Archive, and it'll be a monthly offer of twelve wines, uh, great wines from around the world, uh, from classic regions and from uh, more up and coming uh, styles. And it's my way of hand hand choosing some wines, and representing really great producers and importers, suppliers, and then working with clients in a direct way. That's so awesome. uh, we're not shipping 
wine across the country or anything uh-huh, like that. Uh-huh. It'll be local pickup and, sure. and getting to have a, a relationship built with that. So Aaron, I, uh, who just got here, he's he's helped me with that. And um, so so that's a new project. That's awesome. Yeah. So excited about that. But um, That's what I mean. It's online. It's no storefronts. You know? Well, because <laughs> it's, it would be a waste to spend let's say a thousand bucks or two thousand bucks on rent yeah plus you have to you can't have an empty shop so you have to fill it with inventory and if that sits at room temperature all day long Mm -hmm. it's not good for the wine and then you have to staff it with someone and if it's a wine shop maybe you know they might have intermittent um customers coming in i just don't like the traditional retail model uh for a number of reasons i think it's important but uh i would rather focus on a very specialized selection of wines, be able to have a, a one-on-one relationship with each client and cut out a lot of the overhead um, while maintaining a, a level of service. That makes sense. Yeah. So yeah. we'll see how it goes. Um, Speaking my language. Yeah, dude. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate you uh, coming over. And I feel like the time flew by. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, absolutely, um, dude. So I could talk. I, we could probably talk for a couple of days. We here. could do a, a follow-up yeah. episode after your after your competition in April. We'll see how that goes, um, yeah. I want to yeah. hear how it goes and, and what you sure, sure. bring to the table there. But Be happy. Be happy yeah. to do it. Cheers, thank you. Thanks for having me on, man.